This recording is a service of the Allen County Public Library's audio reading service. It is specifically designed for and directed to people who have visual, physical, learning, or language challenges to reading traditional printed materials. It's time for the New Yorker. Since 1925, it's been the world's source for the finest in art and fiction, sophisticated reviews, humor, commentary, and news. Stay tuned for this week's Culture Blast from the one and only New Yorker, right now on your audio reading service. Welcome. This is The New Yorker, and I'm your reader, Chad, with the audio reading service at the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Today, I'll be reading from The New Yorker of January 15th, 2024. Beginning with Annals of Education Showing Up Has School Attendance Become Optional? By Alec McGillis On a cold, clear weekday morning in early December, Shepria Johnson pulled up to a small house in Ecorse, Michigan, in an SUV with a decal on the driver's door, which read, Student Wholeness Team. She looked at an app on her phone. It was her third of ten visits that morning, and she was there to check on a girl and a boy, eleven and nine, who had missed enough days of school to put them on a list of chronically absent students at Grandport Academy in Ecorse, an industrial suburb of Detroit. In case there was no one home, Johnson wrote the students' names on a form letter and addressed the envelope to the parent of Josiah and King. She wrote parent, avoiding the plural as she had seen schools do. If it's a one-parent household, that might get touchy. There was someone home. Quantica Prude opened the door. Behind her were some of her eight children. Cats darted up and down the front steps, which were garlanded with Christmas decorations. Johnson introduced herself and said that she was concerned about Josiah and King's attendance and wanted to see if there was anything the family needed to help them get to school. This is King, Prude said, gesturing to a slender boy with wary eyes. And this is Josiah, a girl with her hair in thick side buns. Prude, a friendly 32-year-old with multiple nose and lip studs, said she had woken the two up that morning, but they had gone back to bed, assuming she would be at her job as a security guard at the Fillmore Detroit Entertainment Venue. By the time she discovered that they hadn't left for school, it seemed too late to send them. She had set up a nanny cam to see what was going on at the house when she was away, she said, but the cats had chewed it up. She hadn't been aware until recently how many days they had missed. She had noticed some attempted calls from their school, but hadn't realized what they were about. I tell them, y'all are going to get me in trouble for this, she told Johnson. This is not anything like truancy. We come from a place of support, Johnson said, in her characteristically upbeat tone. But yes, it could lead to that, if they're not in school, so we want to make sure they understand. Back in the SUV, Johnson's composure briefly fell away. Wow, they are too little to be skipping, she said under her breath. Johnson is part of an increasingly popular approach to combating truancy. She makes home visits to learn why children are missing school, and then works with families and schools to get them back on track. She oversees a team of six people in southeastern Michigan who were employed by a Baltimore company called Concentric Educational Solutions, which has contracts with seven small school districts in the Detroit area. 
Since 2021, she has been driving back and forth across the downriver towns southwest of the city, a vast expanse of dollar stores, pot dispensaries, and manufacturing plants, some active, some abandoned. She passes the Marathon Refinery, the Great Lakes Steelworks, and the giant Ford Rogue Complex, where this fall she could see the picket line of the United Auto Workers strike. The strike ended. The crisis that Johnson was dealing with, on the other hand, seemed never-ending. Absenteeism has long been a problem in the Detroit area, as in other places with high poverty rates. But since the coronavirus pandemic, it has worsened dramatically. Nationwide, the rate of chronic absenteeism, defined as missing at least 10% of school days, or 18 in a year, nearly doubled between 2018-19 and 2021-22 to 28% of students, according to data compiled for the Associated Press by Thomas D., a professor of education at Stanford. Michigan's rate was 39%, the third highest among states. States that have reported data for the most recent school year showed only minimal improvement. Some cities have rates of more than 40%. Absenteeism underlies much of what has beset young people in recent years, including falling school achievement, deteriorating mental health, exacerbated by social isolation, and elevated youth violence and car thefts, some occurring during school hours. But schools are using relatively little of the billions of dollars that they received in federal pandemic recovery funds to address absenteeism. The issue has also attracted surprisingly little attention from leaders, elected or otherwise, and education coverage in the national media has focused heavily on culture war fights. This void created an opportunity for a fledgling company like Concentric. Founded in 2010 by David Hyber, a former school administrator, the company grew slowly. It had only about 20 employees before COVID ignited the business. Concentric now has more than 100 employees, and it recently received a $5 million investment from a social venture capital firm to fuel expansion. Right place, right time, right pandemic, Hyber told me sardonically. Quantica Prude had her first child when she was 13, so she finished her education at the city's maternity academy. Before that, though, she liked going to school. It was fun. Who wanted to be at home and listen to your mom complain all day, she told me, when I spoke with her after Johnson's visit. But then we didn't have COVID and cities being shut down. During the pandemic, Detroit's public schools, where her kids were enrolled at the time, remained closed to in-person instruction for nearly a year. They did school online. I hated it, she said. They took it as a joke most of the time, playing in class, because they felt that they were at home and they could do that. After the family moved to a course last summer, the mindset lingered. They got too comfortable at home, she said. This is a dynamic that Johnson has repeatedly encountered. When classes were virtual, students would log on some days, and some days they wouldn't. The world did not end. For parents, it might seem easier that way. No dragging kids out of bed before daybreak. No wrestling them into proper clothes. No getting them to the bus stop as one's own work waited. You were able to just do the things you needed to do, Johnson said. Everybody was comfortable. It was, I can go to my computer. My baby is in my room on the computer. We're good. After that hiatus, relearning old behaviors was hard. 
If I were a child and I could stay at home on my computer, in my room, and play with my little toys on the side, pick up the game for your break or lunchtime, how hard is it to sit in a school building for seven hours, she said. It takes us to help build those habits, and I don't think just one person can do it alone. Some parents, unimpressed by what instruction consisted of during remote learning, didn't see missing school as that consequential. Some simply liked having their kids around. You're dealing with a different generation here. This is a parent generation that plays video games with their children. Stephen McGee, the superintendent of the Harper Woods District, another concentric client near Detroit, said, When we were kids, we were out of the house and at school. There was no option. This became optional. Even before COVID, some students in the Detroit area had been able to choose online-only learning as an offering from public or charter schools. Since the pandemic, many schools have made it easier for students to try to catch up from missed days with online material. The spectrum from in-person to virtual to nothing at all can get pretty fuzzy. One early afternoon, I saw an eight-year-old boy with headphones on standing outside a house in E-Course playing a video game on a tablet. His mother had died of a heroin overdose two years earlier, and his father said that he had enrolled his son in an online academy because their housing situation was uncertain. Usually, there were three hours of instruction daily, he said, but the Wi-Fi hadn't been working properly. He's done for the day, his father said. Families faced other hurdles as well. One student's father had died a month earlier, and in the previous six months, two of his grandparents had also died. His mother was suffering from heart disease that prevented her from working, and she could no longer afford school clothes. Johnson alerted the student's principal, who had a special fund for such needs. The mother of a middle school girl had been in a car crash. When a concentric employee visited, the mother had trouble even coming to the door, and she explained that she couldn't get her daughter to school anymore. A high school boy had moved in with his grandmother, but he was sleeping on the porch for lack of a bed. Concentric bought him one. A superintendent purchased a washer and dryer after hearing from Concentric that some students weren't coming to school because they didn't have any clean clothes. Once you have these conversations, you know that there are real-life events that happen. There are real-life circumstances where they're just not able, Johnson said. Still, there were circumstances in which negligence did seem to be an issue. Johnson, who is 34 and has three kids, could feel her natural sympathy being tested. I've had a parent tell me, well, hey, she wasn't there because of my life problems. I get it, but you can't just leave a student out of school because you have issues. Sometimes parents ask Johnson if she was a truant officer, and she would reply, no, I'm a professional student advocate, which was what Concentric called its outreach workers. If you're a truant officer, they're defensive, she told me. They automatically assume you're there to get them in trouble. Within the U.S., the concept of mandatory schooling can be traced to the 17th century, when the Puritans of Massachusetts positioned it as fundamental to Christian society. But this tenet was challenged by the Industrial Revolution, as children went to work in the mills. After Massachusetts instituted compulsory schooling policies in the 1840s and 50s, enforcement was spotty. But in 1873, the state passed a law requiring attendance between the ages of 8 and 12 for at least 20 weeks a year. The law was enforced by agents of the school committee, truant officers, with fines of up to $5 per week. 
16 years later, the age range was expanded to 14, and a year after that, the required term became 30 weeks a year. W.E.B. Du Bois, reflecting on his upbringing in western Massachusetts in the 1870s and 80s, emphasized his school routine. I was brought up from earliest years with the idea of regular attendance at school, he wrote. This was partly because the schools of Great Barrington were near at hand, simple but good, well taught, and truant laws were enforced. By the 1890-91 school year, more than 200 of Massachusetts's 351 towns had an average daily attendance of 90%, and only 11 were below 80%. During the following decades, mandatory schooling spread nationwide. William Reese, a professor of history at the University of Wisconsin, found that just 6% of adolescents were in high school in 1890, but that by 1930, half of them were. By 1950, attendance was so universal that those who weren't in school were called dropouts. By the early 20th century, the truth is that you're supposed to be in school, and in the long reach of history, that's a remarkable fact, Reese told me. It became a universal norm. Other European nations sort of caught up eventually, but America was in the vanguard of this. Cities often employed truant officers, who roamed the streets searching for children to corral, and repeat offenders risked being brought to juvenile court. But in recent decades, many areas have moved away from legal remedies, following a general shift toward less punitive juvenile justice. In addition, experts, citing psychology literature and evidence from states that still meted out consequences, argued that threats were unlikely to be effective. Punitive, rather than positive, is not the best approach. Michael Gottfried, an economist at the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education, said. Enforcement of state truancy laws has grown rarer. In August, Missouri's highest court affirmed the sentencing of two parents to at least a week in jail for their young children's absences, but most of the movement has been in the other direction. In 2019, for instance, New Mexico removed the role of district attorneys in enforcing attendance. The state, which had some of the longest school closures, saw its chronic absenteeism rates more than double after the pandemic, to 40%, the second highest rate among states, after Alaska. The case of Kamala Harris is instructive. As the San Francisco district attorney in the mid-2000s, she made headlines for prosecuting parents of extremely truant students. I believe that a child going without an education is tantamount to a crime, Harris said, during her run for state attorney general in 2010. So I decided I was going to start prosecuting parents for truancy. During that campaign, she pushed for a statewide law that made it a misdemeanor for parents if their kids were chronically absent, punishable by a fine of up to $2,000 or a year in jail. In 2013, the state amended the law, giving school principals more leeway to excuse absences. When Harris ran for the 2020 Democratic nomination for president, she received heavy criticism for her efforts. She expressed contrition, saying that she had hoped the law would simply prod districts to offer more resources to aid truant students. My regret is that I have now heard stories where, in some jurisdictions, DAs have criminalized the parents, she said, and I regret that that has happened. In recent years, however, efforts to fight absenteeism have tended to involve nudges, not threats.
In 2015, Todd Rogers, a behavioral scientist at Harvard, co-founded Everyday Labs, which sent letters and text messages to families with reminders about the importance of school and statistics about how their children's attendance compared with classmates. Parents could also respond to a chatbot about challenges that they were facing in getting their kids to school. The company was hired by some 50 school districts, but its approach was most effective with milder cases of absenteeism, less so with severe ones. David Hyber, Concentric's founder, is an advocate of direct intervention, perhaps because he wishes he had received it when he was young. Hyber, who was 47, was brought up in Delaware by his maternal grandparents. He had some contact with his mother, a white woman who suffered from alcoholism, but he did not know his father, who was black, until he was an adult. His grandfather, whom he called Dad, was a truck driver, and he and Hyber's grandmother, Mom, provided him with a stable middle-class upbringing. In high school, he was a track star who attracted scholarship offers. In his senior year, his grandfather had a fatal heart attack while Christmas shopping. Hyber went back to school just two days later and receiving no social work support, although a gym teacher let him play ping-pong for hours on end. He spun out of control, he told me. He was expelled from school, convicted of burglary, and sentenced to some five years in prison. While he was incarcerated, his grandmother died of cancer. I just decided, something has to happen, he said. I got to do something. He earned his GED behind bars, and a judge released him after 27 months on the condition that he enroll in college. He attended Lincoln University, a historically black institution in Pennsylvania, and got a job teaching high school in Baltimore, which he did for a year before taking an administrative position at a different local school. But in 2006, he faced one set of misdemeanor charges related to a breakup, which were later dropped, and another set, he told me, for his role interceding in a fight between students at a high school in Washington, D.C., which he had been visiting as an observer. That case resulted in four years of probation. It was a rough period, Hyber said. Very few people go in a straight trajectory. In 2007, he moved to Washington, D.C. to become the director of student services for a small group of charter schools. One day, Hyber and some colleagues were wondering what to do about truant students, and it occurred to him that one lived just across the street from the school. He suggested going to the student's home. There, his grandmother said that he was attending a different school. For Hyber, it was an epiphany. To get the right information, you needed to go to students' homes, both to show families that the system cared about them and to gain a better understanding of what was keeping the students away. Unreliable transportation depression, lack of clothes, or a myriad other factors. There was a list of maybe 200 or so, and we just thought, ask them questions, he said. Hyber came to realize that there was an art to conducting visits in ways that didn't make families feel judged. In one home, a cockroach fell onto his shoulder, and he managed to keep himself from recoiling because it would have made the whole conversation go different, he said. In 2010, he was approached by the New Schools Venture Fund, a philanthropy looking to invest in black entrepreneurs. He received $150,000 to help create Concentric, with the initial aim of advising districts on how to improve home visits by teachers. But it became apparent that many districts were having trouble getting teachers to do home visits at all, and instead were interested in having Concentric do them. 
Heiber embraced the new mission, becoming an evangelist for what he saw as an underappreciated aspect of the education system. Most school systems pay the least amount of money for the most important job, he said. I'm not saying that teaching is not a very important job, but they got to be in school to be taught. His initial contracts were primarily in Detroit. He met several administrators in the school system there, mostly black men roughly his own age, who then left to lead districts in the city's working-class inner suburbs. They hired Concentric and recommended it to others in the region. The frequent travel to Detroit was a strain on Hyber and his family, as was the scramble for new clients. He incurred bills for unpaid taxes and home improvements, leading to court proceedings in Prince George's County, a Maryland suburb of Washington where he lived. Then came the post-pandemic boom, with new business in Maryland districts. Contracts ranged from $50,000 for home visits in a small district to several million dollars for home visits, plus mentoring and tutoring in some large ones. In 2021 and 2022, Concentric hired dozens of employees, many of them young black college graduates. It gave them two weeks of training, which included instruction as basic as how to knock on doors. I tell everyone, knock a little harder, but don't knock like the police, a Concentric manager said. The job mostly paid on an hourly basis, as much as $35 per hour. The professional student advocates dressed well, in black polo shirts with the company logo, or sometimes in suits. I didn't want people to go into a building and not know that they were our PSAs, Hyber said. The company's rapid expansion, with revenue reaching $8 million last academic year, brought growing pains. Some employees went weeks without getting paid, as income from new contracts arrived too late for payroll, and the company had to turn to lenders, several of whom later filed suit for non-payment. Most of the legal actions against Concentric and Hyber have been settled. Concentric's growth only accelerated as the new school year began. For many districts, tracking down missing students was existential. Several million children had left public schools for private and parochial ones, or for homeschooling. Several hundred thousand were simply unaccounted for. With fewer students, some districts faced teacher layoffs and school closures. To bring more order to the expansion, Hyber hired experienced managers. In early October came an announcement that a firm called New Markets Venture Partners was investing $5 million in Concentric. One of the firm's partners, who was in charge of the investment, told Hyber that Concentric was worth $15 million. The federal pandemic funding that some districts were using to pay Concentric would fade in 2024, but many districts were using state money, which would continue. He thinks we could be a $150 million business in five to seven years, Hyber said. Every few weeks, Concentric received a fresh list of absent kids from each district, often about 50 names. Shepria Johnson's list brought her to tiny bungalows, ramshackle apartments, and public housing complexes. Sometimes she arrived at homes that appeared abandoned. I pull up and I'm like, no way, nobody lives here, she said. And I would knock on the door and I see people peeking out and I think, oh my god, someone does live here. She was able to stave off demoralization by feeling a purpose far greater than she'd had at her previous jobs. She'd worked as a manager at a shoe store and at a Verizon store, while making efforts to complete her college degree. You don't know what you'll go and see, but if you're not doing it, then you can't help, she said. It doesn't make me sad anymore, it's just, how can I help? 
She took pride in her ability to get parents to open up to her. They go off of your energy. If you're at the door and you're upset with me, I'm not going to get upset with you, she said. We should all consider the person on the other side of the door. We know what we're trying to do. We're trying to make a difference. But they don't know that when we're knocking at the door. The conversation was only the first half of the job. Next was relaying what information she had learned to school officials or to concentric employees stationed at schools. A mother in a mobile home park said that her son, who was in high school, needed tutoring. Another mother said that her son was always late to school because he hated algebra, his first period, and suggested changing his schedule. Even when Johnson found an address uninhabited, with nothing but a can of air freshener visible in the empty living room, she considered it useful because it alerted the school that it needed updated contact information from a student. These sorts of home visits are so new that there has been little chance to assess them. A Johns Hopkins University evaluation of Concentric in the Baltimore School District, its largest contract, during the 2021-22 school year, reported that a majority of home visits found nobody there. The evaluator struggled to judge the impact even of the visits that did reach family members because there was no attendance data from the pandemic year of 2020-21 to compare the new numbers with. The Johns Hopkins study found, however, that school administrators praised the company's efforts. Superintendents in Michigan echoed this praise. The number of companies that pledge or promise to address inequities or deficits that are experienced in urban schools, it's exhausting. Derek Coleman, the superintendent of Michigan's River Rouge School District, told me. But Concentric, he said, is able to go into places that many educators are reluctant to go into, for safety reasons, and make families feel comfortable. They create psychological safety to share whatever those challenges are. And that then gives us data and information to make adjustments. Connecticut, which has launched a home visit initiative in 15 districts, has taken a slightly different approach. Outreach workers call ahead to schedule visits with families, which can last longer than an hour. A study found that the program, which is carried out by school employees or community members, and which has cost $24 million, resulted in an increase in attendance of 15 to 20 percent among middle and high schoolers nine months after the first visit. But Johnson preferred arriving unscheduled, believing that it gave her a clearer picture of the household context. When you're on the spot, you have the pure parent, she said. If you schedule it, they're prepared. They already know why you're coming. They already know their story, but you're not getting the raw reason. On a couple of occasions, visits by members of Michigan's concentric team uncovered situations so troubling that they prompted calls to Child Protective Services. More often, the team found a different recourse. Michigan is one of the few states that still enforce legal repercussions for truancy. A school police officer or administrator or a concentric PSA can send a JC01 form to the prosecutor's office for Wayne County, where most of the concentric districts are. If the prosecutor's office finds sufficient evidence, it typically offers students who are 10 or older a diversion program, the chance to improve attendance and have their records wiped clean. If that fails, students may be brought before a judge. Cases of younger kids are referred to the adult division, and charges may be brought against their parents. Johnson, her colleagues, and the superintendents in the concentric districts in Wayne County all said that the JCL1 forms have been a valuable tool in the most extreme cases. Sometimes the court would even threaten to block parents' welfare payments. 
It was very powerful, Joshua Fallison, the superintendent in eCourse, said. But during the pandemic, the superintendent said, the process broke down. It took much longer to hear from the prosecutor's office about forms that had been filed. When the pandemic started, they just stopped doing it, Tallison told me. Stiles Simmons, his counterpart in the Westwood District, which is nearby, told me the same. The courthouse pretty much shut down, he said, and then there was a backlog. Robert Heinbuch, the chief of the juvenile division at the prosecutor's office, said that his team had continued to handle JCL1 forms, shifting meetings and hearings to Zoom, but that some steps in the process might have taken longer. He didn't know if referrals for chronically absent students had fallen off because JCO1s were filed for all manner of juvenile delinquency cases, and his office did not keep a tally of how many were for truancy. After a morning of home visits with Johnson, I met with Sarah Lenhoff, a professor of education policy at Wayne State University, who started studying absenteeism in 2016. She joined a coalition to tackle the problem in Detroit and became convinced that the crisis is now so severe that it requires a greater response. We are thinking about school attendance all wrong, she said. It's societal. Several of the Wayne County superintendents working with Concentric agreed. The issue of chronic absenteeism is much broader than what the school and its partners can handle, Simmons said. There needs to be something else done. It was a compelling argument. Throughout the country, local and state government officials, school boards, and others had decided that it was in the public interest to close school buildings for a year or more, and now it was going to take a group effort to rebuild the norms. The issue couldn't be left to individual schools or districts, or to a single company. Society as a whole needed to reinforce, as it had in Massachusetts more than a century ago, the importance of school. It was where children awakened to the world's opportunities, where they learned how to be productive citizens, and for some, where they found a daily routine and regular meals. Instead, as Lenhoff noted, families often got the opposite message. Inadequate infrastructure had led Detroit to cancel school for several days last year because of excessive heat. Schools had also closed in the face of forecasts of snow, which brought no actual snow. Districts get penalized by the state's funding formula if attendance drops below 75% on any day, and so they may close schools when they fear that too few kids will show up. If you have that happen often enough, it does erode your feeling that the system is there for us, and not just when it's convenient for them, Lenhoff said. One day, shortly after noon, I encountered several 15- and 16-year-old boys who had recently arrived from Latin America and were walking a dog in the quiet streets of River Rouge. But they weren't playing hooky. School had been closed that day, owing to plumbing problems. A short drive away, a middle school girl was playing in a front yard, while her older sister and some of her friends, in their late teens and early 20s, were hanging out in a nearby car, one with a baby on her lap. The younger sister was also not missing school. It had been only a half day in her district to allow for professional development courses. Asked why absenteeism had increased, the young women didn't hesitate. That's what the corona did, Serenity, who is 21, told me. Now, they're sending the kids back to school, and they don't want to no more. They want to stay at home and play on their computers. When December arrived, the weather became another obstacle. Leaving home was even less appealing when it was dark and cold out. 
One mother told Johnson that her son had been missing school because she hadn't been able to buy him a winter jacket. Another mother told Johnson that she had just been crying on the toilet. Her rent had doubled, so she wasn't going to be able to afford Christmas presents for her kids. The rent increase had forced her to pick up a second job at a fast food restaurant, which had disrupted her school drop-off and pick-up routines. Johnson alerted the children's school and suggested that it put the family on its list for gift donations. In any course, Quantica Prude was worried about money, too. She had less coming in now than a year earlier, when she had been working a second job at a Wendy's. The reason her nanny cam wasn't working, she told me, was not the cats, as she had said to Johnson, but because she couldn't afford the monthly payments. But she told me that she might quit her security job, too, to better monitor the schooling of her kids, who also included a girl in ninth grade, twin girls about to turn eight, who were in special education programs, and a four-year-old girl in preschool. I'm going to get it together, she said. With Josiah and King, it's going to take me to sit them down and talk to them really good and let them know to understand what they're doing and causing. Because this is not a game or a joke. Not only can you get people in trouble, but you need an education. The next morning, it was just getting light as Josiah and King were scheduled to bring their little sister two blocks away for her preschool bus. A cat pawed at the front door, as if to remind them and then they emerged. They were a few minutes late, which meant that King needed to wave at the bus as Josiah hustled her sister down the sidewalk, a hand on her shoulder. Then Prude's mother emerged to load the two of them and their older sister into her car. On this day, they were going to make it. Continuing in the New Yorker, in the Critics section, on and off the menu, Fresh Direct, A Passion Fruit Devotee's Pilgrimage West, by Hannah Goldfield. About a decade ago, a friend of mine and her husband moved from Brooklyn to Los Angeles. After landing at LAX, they went straight to Gelina, a restaurant in Venice that exemplifies a certain image of life in Southern California. Seasonal, sensual, wood-fired cooking. A sun-dappled patio near the beach. We had this long, exquisite lunch, she recalled recently. And just as we were getting ready to pay the bill, feeling like, wow, we're Californians now, something dropped out of the sky and landed in the middle of the table. A passion fruit had fallen from one of the vines overhead, and as they sat there staring at it in delight, a waiter appeared. Wordlessly, she said, he cut the fruit into two hemispheres and handed each of us a tiny dessert spoon. The story sounds like it was plucked out of a tourism campaign, or the depths of my subconscious. I first tried fresh passion fruit 15 years ago, in Brazil, and in the years since it has captured my appetite and my imagination in equal measure. A passion fruit is as enclosed and mysterious as a hen's egg, though a common commercial variety called Frederick's looks like it was laid by a dragon. When it falls off the vine, its exterior is smooth, firm, and slightly speckled, the deep purple color of wine-stained lips. The shell is stiff and leathery, requiring a bit of sawing to open. What's inside seems almost not meant to be seen, a geometrical, otherworldly cluster of small black seeds, edible, delicate, and pleasingly crunchy, each suspended in an orb of glossy, sunset-colored pulp, surrounded by fragrant juice of the same golden hue, as obscenely slurpable as an oyster. I find the flavor, perhaps my single favorite, intoxicating. It's citrus-adjacent, but more complex, 
sweet, bright, savory, sour, and even a touch sulfuric. My husband, who loves it less than I do, has likened it to body odor. After my trip to Brazil, I searched for fresh passion fruit obsessively in New York and rarely found it. When I did, it was often priced prohibitively high, as much as $5 for a single piece. And then, about a year into the pandemic, I hit upon something enviable while scrolling through Instagram. A video of an influencer with a chicly appointed kitchen, unboxing a shipment of passion fruit. I learned that a company called Rincon Tropics in California would mail it across the country, quite affordably, if you were willing to purchase a minimum of five pounds. A few days after I placed my first order, a large USPS box arrived, filled to the brim with fragrant purple globes, sturdy enough that they needed minimal cushioning. I piled them in a bowl to wrinkle, the more shriveled they get, the sweeter, and worked my way through several a day. A few weeks ago, I shook the hand of the man who grew them. Nick Brown, a slight, bearded, 32-year-old who wore a wide-brimmed hat atop a tuft of dark hair, met me at the bottom of a dusty road that led up to his family's ranch in Carpentaria, some 70 miles north of L.A., on a hillside with a glorious ocean view. As we bumped around the 600-acre property in his Subaru, Brown, a sixth-generation farmer, pointed out groves of trees drooping with the weight of unripe avocados and scaly green cherimoya. Like a mango, a pineapple, and a banana all put together, he said, which his father commercialized in the U.S. more than 40 years ago. Around the same time, the family also planted passion fruit vines, but found that there was no steady market for their yield. At times, they couldn't give it away, Brown said. About six years ago, he decided to try again. He had noticed, as I have, a gradual infiltration of passion fruit, a mainstay of Latin American and Asian cuisines, and huge in Hawaii, into the broader American palate. It flavors big brand seltzer, yogurt, and lip balm. I've seen it on the menu at trendy New York restaurants and in buzzy cookbooks such as More Than Cake by the downtown darling pastry chef Natasha Pickowitz, which includes recipes for jellied passion fruit candies and passion fruit olive oil curd. Pickowitz told me recently that whenever she incorporated it into a menu item at Flora Bar, the Upper East Side restaurant where she worked until it closed in 2020, people would go crazy for it jumping to order the dessert based on that ingredient alone. The passion fruit was a hit at the Santa Monica Farmer's Market, where Brown had a stand. In 2020, after he stopped driving down because of the pandemic, he began to ship it to a few of his regulars, some of whom happens to be influencers. Brown's Instagram account, where he posts Edenic landscapes and still lives of halved fruit, gained a new crowd of admirers. These days, he ships about a thousand pounds of passion fruit a week, roughly five thousand pieces, directly to consumers and to restaurants. As we stood beside a thick hedge of vines, growing horizontally, he bent over to pick up fallen fruit, balancing half a dozen pieces in one hand, as if he were about to perform a juggling act. Instead, he carried them to a patio in the center of a sunny stretch of grass, rimmed by succulents and flowering rosemary bushes. I didn't bring spoons, he said, as he sliced a few fruits open with a serrated knife. But there's hoses here where we can rinse off. I squeezed half a shell in my palm to loosen the seeds and scraped them out with my teeth, juice running down my chin. 
We can't grow enough, Brown told me, in part because the weather has been unpredictable. Last spring, when he would have expected the vines to flower, ready to be pollinated by bees, a wet fog rolled in and didn't lift for weeks. Once the crop had finally dried out, Brown still had to contend with another issue, deer. They really love passion fruit vines, but they're kind of jerks about it, he explained. I have a video on my phone of a herd just picking off the green, immature passion fruits and eating them like an apple, and then looking up at me like, what are you going to do about it? To follow the scent of passion fruit around L.A. is to discover some of the city's most interesting and quintessentially California cooking. Isla, a new restaurant in Santa Monica, offers a passion fruit glazed olive oil muffin, plus a tiki-inspired cocktail called an early retirement, which is garnished with a flaming passion fruit shell. At the beloved Los Feliz restaurant Kismet, the chef-owners, Sarah Hymanson and Sarah Kramer, serve reduced passion fruit pulp over a silky chicken liver mousse, the syrup brightening the liver's creamy richness and tempering its clang of iodine. The Venezuelan-born chef Carla Subero Pital runs a pop-up called Chainsaw out of her home in historic Filipino town, offering, every few weeks, dessert drops, a term popularized by streetwear culture, which is also, in this case, literal. One evening in December, while Felice Navidad twinkled out of a distant speaker, I stood beneath Sabero Pital's open window, framed by palm trees, as she lowered a basket by rope and pulley. Inside was one of her signature offerings, a passion fruit lime icebox pie, capped with frozen whipped cream. A couple of days later, in the living room of a mid-century house high in the hills of Silver Lake, I sat with the chef Gerardo Gonzalez as he made a passion fruit aguachile, my favorite way to use it recently, he said. Gonzalez, who grew up in San Diego, cooked for years in New York, adding an inventive interpretation of Californian Mexican cuisine to the downtown scene around what's now called Dimes Square, after the restaurant Dimes. About a year ago, Gonzalez returns to his home state. I sincerely mean it when I say the fruit is why I moved back, he told me, tossing translucent cubes of raw shrimp in passion fruit pulp and satsuma mandarin juice. The satsumas grew on a tree that we could see through the window. Part of the promise of Southern California is the impeccable produce, and that you don't need 600 acres to grow it yourself. To raise money for a custom surfboard, a nine-year-old I knew sold me several pounds of passion fruit foraged from his garden in Echo Park. For some years, Gusta, a more casual sister establishment to Galena, bought passion fruit from a Venice native called Thor Evanson, a self-described hippie kid artist and schoolteacher who had a backyard vine so productive that he'd approached a few local restaurants hawking his surplus. One person grows 800 passion fruit, and you can't eat those, so you go to your neighbor who has chicken and eggs, and then you trade, he told me, summarizing a podcast about economics that he'd listened to recently. Or you go to a fancy restaurant, and they're like, oh, seven bucks a pound, no problem. It's a long and complicated story, but that's kind of how humanity works. On my last morning in L.A., I returned to Filipino town, to a cafe called Doubting Thomas, known for its passion fruit pie, made with produce from Brown's farm, and ordered a slice to go. 
On the plane home, as I watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I opened the small cardboard box to reveal a wedge of vivid custard, as luscious as melted gelato, topped with whipped cream fresh and a spoonful of seeds. The fruit's familiar bracing tartness was mellowed only with sweetened condensed milk, which was in turn offset by a salty, crisp graham cracker macadamia crust. At my feet, in a carry-on bag, sat several pounds of passion fruit, destined for yogurt, smoothies, and the jellies from Natasha Pickowitz's cookbook. Last summer, Pickowitz told me, she planted a vine in her Brooklyn backyard. It flowered, but did not fruit. I will trade her all my chickens and their eggs when it does. Continuing in the critics section. Dancing. Broken and rebuilt. Biyani Satpathy and a New Understanding of Indian Classical Dance by Jennifer Homans Every artist confronts her past, and in the case of the Indian dancer Biyani Satpathy, that past is both a country and a colonial legacy. Satpathy performs Odissi, a dance style from the eastern state of Odisha, which is one of India's eight classical dance forms. Although Indian classical dance is commonly assumed to be ancient and reverential, and there is a documented history of devotional dancing extending back more than two millennia, all eight of these designated classical styles are modern, post-colonial inventions. Even before the British formally departed the country in 1947, Indian authorities had set out to give their emerging nation its own indigenous theatrical arts, and gurus and dancers from various regions began assembling standardized forms out of a dizzying variety of local practices and traditions. By 1952, four of these freshly codified dance styles, Bharatanatyam, Kathak, Kathakali, and Manipuri, had been formally recognized by the government and given an elite Western stamp, classical, a word that, as Anna Rima Banerjee points out in her book Dancing Odissi, had no true equivalent in Indian languages until British rule. Exponents of Odissi pushed for inclusion and exhibited the form at a landmark meeting in New Delhi in 1958, with Nehru himself presiding over a celebratory reception. Odissi gained official recognition two years later and has since been joined by other newly defined forms. The dances these gurus came up with mostly privileged Hindu traditions and texts, even though historically dance across India was shaped by many religious and philosophical contexts. Odissi, for instance, also has Jain, Buddhist, Muslim, animist, and secular theatrical roots. Everything was tightly regulated. There were rules for postures, steps, and musical structures, for textual and sculptural sources, for performance, including what order particular pieces should be performed in. The new national dances were also cleaned up, following the lead of purity-minded British social reformers who had stigmatized temple dancers as prostitutes and tried in some cases to ban them. Others tried to strip the dances of overt sexuality, a fool's errand, as one glance at the erotic S-curved body in Odyssey proves. Caste played a role, too. In some traditions, such as Bharatanatyam, from Tamil Nadu, temple dancers were typically of low caste, but in the remade, classicized version of the form, Bharatanatyam became largely the province of bourgeois Brahmin women. Today, a few lower caste dancers, such as Nirithya Pillai, are trying to take back their art. 
Meanwhile, some Hindu nationalists have made moves to link Odissi to their cause, in disregard of Muslim and other historical influences on the art form. In 2018, Narendra Modi's government even nominated the Odissi dancer Sonal Mansingh to the parliament. Satpathi, who is 50, is no stranger to the ironies of her art. She began dancing as a child and later studied in the style of Kalacharan Mohapatra, one of the male gurus who codified Odissi in the 50s. Among the techniques she absorbed was the virtuosic Gotapua style, which emerged during the Mughal Empire and was traditionally danced by young boys cross-dressing to perform female roles. In 1993, she joined Naritya Gram, a female troupe based in Bangalore. At Naritya Gram, which means dance village in Sanskrit, dancers and students live, breathe, eat, and sleep Odissi in ways that recall the immersion of past devotional and temple practices, except that here the devotion is aesthetic, not religious. Satpathi is agnostic. In a further spirit of independence, Naritya Graham avoids having male gurus. Instead, the women are their own collective guru, and over the years, their art has drawn on a variety of sources outside those prescribed by the official Odissi form. Satpathi herself has never been orthodox in her approach. As the director of education and elite performer at Naritya Graham, she supplemented established Odissi exercises with yoga, martial arts, ballet, Pilates, and jogging, and even made up her own exercises to stretch the capacities of her dancers and the limits of her art. A day with Satpathi might begin with a run and then move to Odissi's codified isolations of the eyes, neck, torso, palms, fingers, ankles, toes, heels, each body part moving alone and in opposition to other body parts. There are dozens of exercises for the eyes alone. She also worked closely with Naritya Graham's artistic director, Sarupa Sen, to bring a variety of ancient texts to bear on new dances. Yet, for all the innovations Naritya Graham introduced, the troupe's performances maintained a traditional Odissi look and feel, and in 2018, after 25 years, Satpathi left this village home to choreograph and perform her own dances. Satpathi's much-anticipated first piece of solo choreography, Abipsa, a seeking, Abipsa is Sanskrit for seeking, was delayed by the pandemic, but finally had its New York premiere at the Barishnikov Art Center, where I saw it this fall. It will go on to tour to various U.S. cities in the spring. Full disclosure, Satpathi and Banerjee have been in residence at NYU's Center for Ballet and the Arts, which I founded and direct. The work is made up of four dances, with original compositions by a team of musicians, including the extraordinary singer and composer Binthumalini Narayanaswamy, who was trained in both Hindustani and Carnatic music. The four dances unfold with a clear trajectory, moving from youth to death, from form to formlessness. The first is a narrative dance inspired by an ode attributed to the 8th century philosopher and poet Sri Adi Shankaracharya, which Satpathi interprets as being about the oneness of male and female sexual organs and the presence in a young girl's body of both masculine and feminine, human and divine. We continue with two movements that reveal the seeking of the title, Vibhanga, Broken and Rebuilt, and Virahai, in longing, and conclude with Vimukthi, the final dance. 
The performance begins in semi-darkness, and we see Satpathy planted in a deep lunge, low to the floor, hands and arms undulating, as if searching the air around her. Bindhumalini's aching, chant-like voice seems to move through jagged half-tones in veering exploration of rhythm and tone. Satpathy is calm and clad in Odissi dress, elegant silks in deep mauve and bright blue, with wrist and ankle bracelets, hair pinned back, heavy makeup, and a large red bindi on her forehead. She deepens the lunge and eventually moves into a standard Odissi position, on one leg, the spine curved in that distinctive erotic S-shape. She's been standing here for decades, and her body seems totally resolved, but, and this is where her seeking takes her, she doesn't stay. Even when Satpathy is rooted, something in her body, arms, fingers, back, shoulders, neck, eyes, eyebrows, is always moving. When she turns and stands to show us her back, for example, her stillness is disrupted by waves of movement traveling up, down, sideways, through muscle and bone. I kept trying to pinpoint the motor or source of her movement, which seems to come from everywhere at once, and to circulate through her body like blood. Her abdominal core, a common motor in dance, is hidden in folds of fabric and in the extreme odyssey arch of the spine, which throws her pelvis back and chest forward. She later told me that the motor is the foot. Not the muscles, but the way the foot hits the ground, which sends energy up through the body and out through the head, limbs, and eyes. This is physical, but also a matter of mind. The movement ends only when the intention driving it has exited the eyes and reaches us. The journey can be slow or fast, even instantaneous. This constant cycling of energy through the body is why her movement never appears static or doll-like, as Odyssey can. Her lyricism even has a familiar Western modern dance flow, which seems surprisingly natural in her Odyssey body. There are Hindu stories in these dances, but they are hard to follow unless you are versed in the meanings assigned to each pose. Dancers memorize these meanings in their training, but part of what Satpathy is up to, I think, is abstracting feelings of jealousy and love so that we feel them without any narrative or religious grounding. It is enough to watch her body and being slide between male and female, object and subject, to become fully absorbed in the dance. Ruptures in tradition and additions to it are interwoven, as if form were not set or rule-bound, but malleable and absorptive. The second dance in Apipsa, for example, uses a Carnatic musical genre, the Thalana, that is common in Bharatanatyam, but not in Odissi. Moving to it, she breaks further from Odissi's formal poses. A hand loses its shape and falls to the floor. A Pilates-style reclining position is held insistently long. The final dance is based on a poem by the medieval North Indian mystic Kabir about death freeing the soul from the confines of life. It is another quiet satpathy acknowledgement of the varied non-Hindu sources of her art. We don't know much about Kabir's life, but we do know that there is a lot of Islamic thought in Kabir's work, and a lot of Kabir's thought in Islamic writings. His poems, claimed by Hindus, Muslims, and Sikhs alike, turn a pointed wit on worldly hierarchies of caste, gender, and religion. They belong to an oral and sung tradition that, like dance, is passed on by those who perform them, from Kabir's day to ours. In this spirit, Satpathy's dance takes full flight, spiraling along Odissi curves and diagonals of space, body, and time.
until, in a sharp movement, she breaks the fourth wall, and we find her momentarily flung before us, arms and eyes open, as if to say, Here I am. She is pulled back into her dance, only to be thrown forward again, this time on her knees, as the music ends and the lights go out. She has arrived at the liberation that death brings, and also, perhaps, at her newly conceived Odyssey life. The ending, I venture, is also political. Under cover of a felt devotion, Satpathy has given the final gesture in this performance of an invented classical Hindu form to a poet whose work cannot be separated from Islam. Well, that's all the time we have for today. This has been Chad with The New Yorker. I hope you've enjoyed today's reading from the audio reading service at the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana.